Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Amen. The word of the Lord. Um, good morning, church. My name is Dakota Jackson. I've, uh, I've been on staff here for about nine months, um, serving on the community ministry team, and it's been a privilege to get to know this church a little bit more over these last nine months, get to know some of you over these last nine months, uh, but I still feel the need to introduce myself a little bit on a morning like this morning. I know I'm an unfamiliar face to maybe many of you. So uh, myself, my family, and I moved up here nine months ago. My wife, my incredible, beautiful, amazing wife, Hillary, um, she is the greatest gift God has given me in this world. If you have not had a chance to meet her yet, I'm sorry, that's on you, that, that, that stinks, but uh, maybe one day you will get the chance to. And then we have two kids, um, two awesome kids. Olivia is our two and a half year old, and then our baby Jace, who is uh, three months old at this point. And so we're coming up on the summer, right, which is wedding season so often. I know we've got a few of them on our calendars already. And one of the things that weddings that I love about them is it makes me reflect on my wife and I's wedding. And you get to just think back on some of the mental pictures that we took during that or some of the physical pictures we have from that and just think about what happened on that day. And one of the things that made our wedding particularly interesting or one lasting memory is that I had a broken leg during our wedding. Yeah, nine weeks to the day before our wedding, I was playing a soccer game and had my leg broken, which was a little bit of panic for a while because what does that mean? Am I going to have to crutch down the aisle, get a wheelchair down the aisle? What's going to happen here? So fortunately, thanks to some, some awesome physicians and doctors, I was able to walk down the aisle on my own two feet uh, but after that, I immediately put the boot back on because I was tired. My leg was killing me. So our whole reception, I'm out there on the dance floor, like kind of limping around and making the most of it. But we've got other weddings for me to show off my dance skills. But at our wedding, it was a bit of a challenge. But you'd have no way of knowing that just looking at me, right? No way of knowing that my leg was broken a few years ago. Because some doctors fixed it, made it stronger than ever was before. It cracks a little now and again, but other than that, there's no way to know because it'd be ridiculous for me to crutch my way up here just because at one point in my life, my leg was broken, right? We know that. If you're sick and then you're healed, you take some medicine, you, you go to the doctor, whatever happens, you're healed. It, it's crazy to just cough because it was a habit that you formed, in the same way, if you were broken and then that's been mended, it'd be ridiculous for you to just continue to limp around. If you were blind and your eyes were open to see, how crazy and outrageous would it be for you to cover your eyes and continue to use a walking stick? Now, what we know to be true is that if we've been healed, if what was wrong in our lives has been made right, then our lives should reflect that truth. If what was wrong in our lives, we were broken, has been made right, and we were fixed, then our lives should look like that and show the world around us that that is true. The very first words in our passage this morning from 1 John chapter 2 are these, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. Here's what's true of those who are in Christ. 
He has indeed healed you of the sickness of sin. And he has mended the broken bones of iniquity in your life. And he has opened your blinded eyes to his glorious light. Therefore, our lives should reflect that reality. We are called to live like that's true. So this morning, we're going to see a few things from this text. Three things in particular that God has called us to live lives differently in these three ways. First is to trust Christ as our mediator when we sin. To trust Christ as our mediator when we sin. The second is to look to Christ as the perfect example of obedience. The perfect model of obedience for life. And then lastly is to depend on the Holy Spirit as our means of loving one another the way that we have been loved. Those are the three things we're going to see in this text this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we'll unpack this text and those three ideas. Father, God, we come before you now as needy people, Lord, as people who just want to see your name be made great. God, would we be moved to see the beauty of you as our mediator? Would we be compelled to follow you as our model, and would we lean into and depend on the Spirit as our means of love? Lord God, just make much of yourself. Father, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. All glory to you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So, our text begins, these three words, before that call, my little children. Uh, you'll notice as we go through this series in John that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, a number of times, John will use these short little phrases when addressing his audience. My little children, uh, my beloved, dear friends. And it's not in sort of a, a belittling kind of way. John in the early church was often referred to as the elder because he was old. <laughs> he, was, he was very old. He lived longer than any of the other apostles. And so he was there to provide this sort of guidance and wise counsel and this guiding hand to the early church in a number of ways. And so he would refer to the church as his little children, his beloved, his dear friends. And so I picture John and I picture the words of God when we hear some of these things. There are some firm, straightforward words in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But, but don't see them as like a harsh rebuke. That's not the way he's coming at it. I think it's far more just stern warnings from somebody who has lived a lot of life and literally walked with Jesus. It's one of the craziest things about the writers of the New Testament. Most of them walked with Jesus. They saw him, they felt him, they heard him say these words. And so John I picture the, the words of God through John like a, a grandpa in a rocking chair, just kind of rocking back and forth. And, and to those who would listen, he's giving strong exhortation. He's giving encouragement. He's giving his wisdom, passing it along for the next generation to come and follow after him. And so the very first command that we see in this text, like we already mentioned, is I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. Whew. that's a weighty call. That's a hard thing to do. In fact, I think we would all probably agree in this room, we read that and go, 
Yep, okay, that's impossible. <laughs> no chance that I can do that. No, I, I will inevitably fall short of that. I'm reminded all the time of my shortcomings, that there's this perfect standard that's been set and I cannot attain it. But it's not the only time that God has said something similar to this. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The requirement of perfection, the standard of perfection that has been set. And we need to be careful, church, not to take that bar of perfection and lower it somehow to something that we could actually attain. The standard is perfection. And our call is to pursue that perfection and see what God will do along the way. Even if we can't attain it, what might he do as we're pursuing it and running towards perfection? So one of the ways I want us to think about this is one of the greatest sports movies of all time is Remember the Titans. Incredible movie. If you haven't seen it yet, I don't know what you're doing. It's on Disney Plus. Come on, like this afternoon. Amazing movie. And, and at the beginning of that movie, Coach Herman Boone stands before his team at their team camp. And he demands of them perfection. He says, you will not drop a pass or you will run a mile. You will not miss a blocking assignment or you will run a mile. You will not fumble my football or I will break my foot off in your John Brown hind parts and then you will run a mile. He demands perfection of his team. And while they didn't live up to that standard, they dropped passes, they missed blocking assignments, and come on, Petey, they fumbled the football. Hold on to that ball, Petey. They individually weren't perfect, but what happened is that as they strived towards and pursued that perfection, the Titans of T.C. Williams High ended their season perfect, undefeated state champs. It's not that we will attain perfection on our own, but it is what happens when we pursue perfection. God does amazing things. And two of them that I want to point out this morning. The first thing that God does as we pursue perfection is that he gives us a greater zeal for righteousness. What do I mean by that? I mean, he gives us more and more of a desire to live the holy lives that he's called us to. The more we strive to be perfect, the more we will desire that sinless, that holiness, that righteous life that God has called us to live. It's like a momentum game. As you start to see victory and freedom from sin in certain areas, you'll begin to want to see more freedom and more victory from sin in more areas. You'll come home from work and your kids will come home from school and you're patient with them. Not quick to anger. You're even at bedtime. You're, you're patient and loving towards them. And you'll begin to see not only the effectiveness of that, but the beauty of that. Or if greed is a struggle in your heart, the more that you give your money away, the looser and looser those chains of greed have on your life. Giving away and, 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 and leaning more and more into this pursuit of perfection will give us more motivation to pursue more perfection, to be zealous for righteousness. So that's the first one. But the second one is that in our pursuit of perfection, like we've been called to in here, here in verse 1, 
is that we will be reminded that we're not perfect. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Okay, I like the sound of that first one. Zealous for more righteousness. Cool. That second one, reminded that I'm not perfect. I don't know about that. I don't know if I need to be reminded of that. Well, here's why 1 John 2 would beg to differ. Because when we're reminded that we cannot be perfect, we are also reminded that we are in need of somebody else's perfection. Here's what the text goes on to say. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. I need you to sit with that for a moment. When you sin, you have an advocate in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The Holy One of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who upholds the entire universe. Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of God himself, is advocating for you on your behalf to God, the righteous and holy judge. When you sin, you have an advocate. That is such a beautiful reality. There's a quote that I want us to look at together. It's by Matthew Henry. He's a theologian from a long time ago. So it's in some some old English. So bear with me on it. But it is beautiful and it wonderfully articulates this idea. What makes Jesus a good advocate? I'll read it for us. It says, by his qualification for the office. It is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous one in the court and in the sight of the judge. This is not necessarily so with another advocate. Another advocate or an advocate in another court may be an unjust person himself and yet may have a just cause to plead and may accordingly carry his cause. Okay, pause. What does that mean? What he's, the point he's making is this courtroom analogy. There's a, there's a, a party who is guilty or innocent, there's an advocate defending their behalf, and there's a judge. And he says, in a different court, an unjust person might be an advocate, and they might have a just cause. They might be defending an innocent person. That might be true in another court, but not in this court, where we are the client, Jesus is our advocate, and God is the judge. This is what's true. But here, the clients are guilty. Their innocence and legal righteousness cannot be pleaded. Their sin must be confessed or supposed. It is the advocate's own righteousness that he must plead for the criminal. He has been righteous to the death, righteous for them. He has brought in everlasting righteousness. This the judge will not deny. Upon this score he pleads that the client's sin may not be imputed to them. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is standing as your advocate and mine when we sin between us and the Father because it's not our perfection that he can plead. It's only his. So what gives him the right to be our good advocate? The text says that it is his name, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the Son of God, which means he has the ear of God the Father. He appeals by his own name, his own qualifications. 
And you see, it says he's Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the holy one, the perfect one. It is not our perfection that Jesus pleads. We are guilty. But he pleads his own perfection. We are already judged as guilty. It's as if, bailiff, lock us up. Put us away and throw away the key. And as the handcuffs are headed towards us, Jesus steps in and takes those on our behalf. He intercepts those handcuffs and says to the judge, judge them based on my perfection and judge me based on their imperfection. Jesus Christ has advocated for us, for the guilty party. How does he do this? By his atoning sacrifice, his perfect record, his spotless, clean sheet of perfection that he lived is laid before the altar of God for you and for me. And the text says, for the whole world. Jesus' righteousness goes so far beyond anything that we could possibly outsin. It is always more than enough to cover our guiltiness is his perfect innocence. Church, I know I'm coming in hot this morning, but do you see the beauty of Jesus as your advocate when you sin? Do you see how wonderful and glorious and praiseworthy it is that God himself is advocating for you? We have an advocator, a mediator in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We need to trust him and praise him because he alone is able to do that for us. And he does so freely and so graciously. Now, I know I could wrap it up there. We could all go home praising Jesus. But the text goes on. And so does the call of the Christian. You see, the call of the Christian is not just the absence of sin. It is also the presence of something good. And here, in particular, we will see the presence of obedience and love. These next two paragraphs, these next two sections of our text, are calling us to live like Christ lived, and to love one another the way we have been loved by him. And I think this is a pretty pervasive issue in America, honestly, is that we can get so hyper-focused on avoiding doing bad things that we can miss the reality that we need to focus on doing the right things. So I'll just avoid sin at all costs, but we, don't, we miss that we're also called towards something, not just away from something. It'd be like playing a game of basketball where you go out on the court and you say, I got one goal, don't foul. It's like, okay, that's a good goal. You want to stay on the court. You're not very effective to your team. If you fall out of the game, it makes all the sense in the world. But if that is your only mission, you will not be very good at the game of basketball because basketball is about taking the ball and putting it in the basket. And yes, not fouling, a good thing, helps you accomplish that. But it is not the goal in itself. We're not only avoiding the bad thing, we're also pursuing the right thing in the same way. You're cooking a meal. And you say, all right, I got one goal for this meal. Don't burn it. Fair enough. You want to avoid that. You want to avoid burnt food. That's great. But if that's your only goal, I can promise you that that 110 degree chicken is not going to taste so good going down and is certainly not going to sit too well in your stomach. So it can't be our only goal 
to avoid the wrong thing, we must also be pursuing the right thing. And in this text, what we see is the right thing is to live the way that Christ lived, to be obedient to God and his word, and to love the way that Christ has loved us, to love as we have been loved. And so, the text starts in verse 3, this is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. Jake talked about last week that 1 John is written so that we would know that we know. Which I love that language because we've got to wrestle with it and get our teeth on it a little bit. But so that we would know that we know. So that we can have assurance that we know Christ. That we are in him. And the text says that we can have assurance that we are in Christ if we keep his commands. In other words, it is our obedience that leads us to an assurance in Christ. It's our, it, it, our, our lives themselves become pieces of evidence. Exhibit A, B, C, and D here is the obedience in my life towards Christ. Now, inevitably, the question that we are going to ask is, well, how much obedience is enough obedience for me to be sure of the faith that I have? You know, on a scale of one to 10, what, like six, seven? Because I'm like six and a half, so I really need to know where I'm at. No. Fortunately, the Lord knows our hearts, but verses four and five say this, the one who says, I have come to know him and yet does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. So God knows your heart and knows your pursuit. But here's the check, the question that I want us to ask ourselves as it comes to this topic of obedience and assurance. Does Jesus have your life service? Or does Jesus just have your lip service? Is your life in service to Jesus and his lordship and his kingdom and the things of God, or is it just your lips? Is it just the words that come out of your mouth? Is it just the picture that you present to the world that is in service to him? There's a stern warning here that John gives. The one who says that but does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. We need to heed that warning and ask ourselves the questions, am I just giving you lip service or is my life in service to you, Jesus? Our lives should be beacons of obedience to Christ because of what he has done for us. And now here's one of the obstacles I think often stands in our way as we pursue this, is it's the way we evaluate maturity as Christians. And and it's it's different than the way we evaluate maturity in life. Because here's what's true. In life, the more mature you are is evidenced by the more independent you are. Right? I have a three-month-old. You leave him alone for two minutes and he might just collapse into a puddle of tears and crying and they cry for no reason. What do you do? He can't be independent. He's very immature. But this last week I had to go out and mow my lawn and I was hanging out with our two and a half year old Olivia and the rain was coming in and my lawn was definitely in need of being mowed. So I was like, all right, I got this. So we went to our back room and I put Frozen on, uh, on our TV. Thank you, Anna and Elsa. I appreciate you. 
And I went outside and I mowed our lawn for like 20 to 30 minutes. Now she was watching the movie and then she'd look out the window and wave at me and she's so cute. So it was adorable, but it showed me something. My, my daughter could go 20 or 30 minutes in a room watching a movie while I went out and mowed the lawn. Her level of independence increased and therefore, in my opinion, her maturity increased. And that's just true of life. You get older, you, you then go off on your first day of school, increased independence, increased maturity. You get a car and you get your driver's license, a big increase in independence, increase in maturity. You go off to college, some of us get less mature, but you're supposed to, more independent, more mature. And before you know it, you're 26 years old, your parents kick you off their insurance, and now you are left to fend for yourself. Independent increasing in maturity. But here's the truth. It's the exact opposite that is true in the kingdom of God. Your dependence on Christ is actually the sign of your maturity. The more dependent you are on Jesus for every single thing in your life, the more mature you are as a believer in him. And one of the ways that that plays itself out is in our obedience. If we are obedient to God and to his word, that is a sign of maturity. And so on this point, I want to talk to two groups real quick. First is to the group who is young in life or young in the faith, new to the faith. You don't have to wait till you've been following Jesus for decades and decades and decades in order to be mature as a believer. You can be obedient to God and to his word and let that mark your maturity. Let that be the, the signal for how mature you are in Jesus. And you can start to lead those around you who have maybe been following him longer than you by being obedient to God and his word. And the second group I want to talk to is those who have been walking with Jesus for a very long time. Now, first, that is so beautiful and worthy to be celebrated. Praise God for the work he has done in your life. But here's the challenge I want to give. Don't get complacent in your obedience. Don't get complacent in your obedience to Jesus. I've been working in ministry long enough now that you start to hear some common phrases. And one of those phrases that I've often heard has come from people who've been walking with Jesus a long time. And it's this. That's just who I am. That's just who I am. And it's often when talking about sin in our life. I'm, I'm just kind of an angry person. That's just who I am. I just, I always say the first thing that comes to my mind. That's just who I am. I have an addictive personality. So I struggle with alcohol. I struggle with pornography. That's, that's just who I am. It's just a part of who I am. Here's the reality. Do not excuse disobedience to Christ with longevity. Do not say just because this is something I've struggled with for a long time, now I'm hopeless and there's no chance God can change me. He is so much bigger than that. He is so much more powerful than that, and he has called you to more than that. 
to live a life of a changed person. You've been healed of your sickness, your brokenness, your blindness, and the call of the Christian is to live a life reflective of that change. Live like you've been healed and do not excuse disobedience, even long-standing disobedience with longevity. He is always refining us and always calling us to look more and more like his son. And so this section of the text here ends exactly with that. Verse 6. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. He being Jesus. Our call as believers is to walk the way he walked. It is so good to have somebody who's gone before us. So good to have a model that we can follow after. When I was in high school, um, my buddies and I went, uh, some guys from my youth group, and I, we went rock climbing. And not like, like a rock wall, not like the one you got on UNI's campus at the WRC, not like a, rock, like a real rock, like a cliff kind of thing. And it wasn't that high. I didn't go free soloing. Like, I'm not that guy. We went, we had some people who were actually like professionals and knew what they were doing, helping us out, doing the whole rope thing so you don't die. And so I start going up this, this cliff, and uh, cliff makes it sound huge. It wasn't that big. But anyway, I'm climbing up this rock, and I get about halfway up, and I'm stuck. And then I start looking down, and you get a little anxious looking down. And, and I turn around, and I'm like, all right, I'm done. I don't know what to do. Bring me down. And right then, my buddy Brandon runs over. Brandon had already gone up the rock wall. And he goes, no, 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 Dakota, you're fine. You're fine. Here, right here, you're going to take your right hand and you're going to put it on that rock. And then you're going to take your left foot and put it on this rock. And you take your right foot and shake it all about. No. He, I got you. I've been where you are before. Let me teach you the way you should go. Brandon could do that because he already had climbed the rock. Church, listen to me. Jesus has already scaled the wall of life perfectly. His foot never slipped. His arms never gave out. Jesus perfectly climbed up this mountain that we call life. And now he's standing at the base of it, leading us and directing us and telling us the way that we should go. He's given us the instruction manual for climbing this mountain of life right here in the Bible, and he himself has already done it, and so he can teach us the way to live. It is so good for us to have a model of somebody who has gone before us and shown us the way to live, and he has done it perfectly. We have the privilege of following him. As the text says, walking the way he walked, or as maybe I would say, climbing the way he climbed up this mountain of life. So our call is to see the beauty of Jesus as our mediator when we sin, to look at him as the model of perfect obedience, and then finally, to depend on the Spirit as our means of love. This last section, verses 7 through 11, can be summed up like this. Love the way that Christ has loved you. Love the way that Christ has loved you. Verses 7 and 8 say, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yet, I'm writing you a new command. 
which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So the section's on love, and it begins with a little bit of a confusing back and forth. It's like, all right, God, what are you telling us? It's old. The command to love is old. It's also new. What's going on? Well, the way I want us to think about this is love itself, the command to love, is as old, older than time. It's the motivation for creation. God created things out of love. We are created as beings for him to love and us to reciprocate that love back to him. But also, especially to the original audience of this text, that love had come in a more beautiful and glorious and powerful way than ever before. When Jesus showed up on the scene, the love of God was way more fully on display than ever before. So it's new and old. Here's, here's how I want us to think about it. An Oreo cookie. Incredible, right? An amazing classic snack. It's been around forever. It's over 100 years old. Milk's favorite cookie. You and I know it. It's amazing. So it was always good. We always had the Oreo. Until one day, some genius, I'm sure inspired by God himself, said, what if we just took more of what people love about an Oreo and put more of it in an Oreo? The double-stuffed Oreo was born. More fully Oreo, more beautifully, perfectly displayed of the essence of an Oreo than anybody had ever seen before. The double-stuffed Oreo. Listen to me, Jesus coming is more beautiful, more powerful, more gloriously displayed than it ever had been before. We knew the love of God, but we didn't really know the love of God until Jesus came and has shown it to us. It is old and it's new. And our call is to love that way. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So, if we're to love the way that we have been loved, the question remains, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. No. What is love? Well, I, we can be prone to think of love as just this fleeting emotion this affection that we give, but this type of love that's talking about is a commitment to continually meet the needs of somebody else. And so I want to give us a functional definition of love for us. It's got three short parts to it. It is to give of yourself for the good of another, expecting nothing in return. To give of yourself for the good of another, expecting nothing in return. To give of yourself. Love necessarily requires some level of sacrifice. You have to give to love. You have to give of your time. You have to give of your energy. You have to give of your money. You have to give of your own desires and lay those down for the sake of another. Sacrifice on the part of one party for the benefit of another. And that's just it. It's for the benefit. It's for the good of another. Loving someone is to pursue their good. To, to meet their needs that they have in their lives. And then finally, expecting nothing in return. You see, if it was just those first two parts, it'd just be a transaction. But love is not a transaction. I'll do this for you and you'll do this for me. 
Love does not require reciprocation. Love is not expectant of an exchange. Love is to give of yourself for the good of another, expecting nothing in return. And how do we know this? Because that is the way we have been loved. Jesus Christ gave of himself fully and completely, laying his entire life down, emptying himself. Why? For us, for you and for me. And not just for some good in us, but for our ultimate good. Jesus Christ gave us the ability to do the thing that we could never do, be reconciled with God the Father. He loved us so much that he gave himself for our ultimate good, expecting nothing in return. And more than that, he knew that we couldn't give him anything back that would repay the kind of love and this incredible gift that he had given to us. That's how we've been loved by our King Jesus, and that is how we are called to love other people the same way. But how on earth can we do that? Well, Jesus wasn't done giving out good gifts when he allowed us to be reconciled with God the Father. Because three days after his brutal death, he had a glorious resurrection. And because of that glorious resurrection, the promised Holy Spirit, which he had foretold about from the beginning, came and now dwells in you and me if if we are one with Christ. If we have confessed him as our Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God is now alive in us. And in Galatians, it lists off the fruit of the Spirit. What's the very first fruit of the Spirit? Love. Our love is not something we just dig down deep and pull out from within us. Our love is not something that we just try really hard to do or stir up more affections in us. Our love, that kind of love, comes from depending on and relying on the Spirit of God within us that compels us and empowers us to love those around us the way that Christ has came and loved us. So who do you need to love like that? You can. You have the power of God in you to love the way that you have been loved by Jesus. So church, this morning, we need to trust and worship and praise and thank our great mediator, Jesus Christ, who is our advocate when we sin. We need to look to him as the perfect model of obedience, following the way he lived his life so that we too can live like God has called us. And lastly, we need to depend on the spirit of God inside of us that is empowering us to love, to give of ourselves for the good of another, expecting nothing in return. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are but vessels to be used by you. But you have given us even more than that, God. You've given us purpose and calling. You've given us direction. You've given us yourself. And there's nothing more that we could ever need than you. God, I I pray for myself and I pray for this church 
that if we confess you as Lord, that we would trust you and rely on you that when we fall short, when we sin, God, we would know that, Jesus, you stand as our advocate. And that we would know that we're called to more, not just to avoid sin, but to pursue good and godly, righteous things, to be obedient to you. Lord Jesus, help us to be obedient by looking to you. And lastly, God, I pray that you would move in power and your spirit would change us, compel us, and move us towards a love towards our brother and sister. God, only you can do these things. And so would you do them for your name's sake and your glory? Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.